the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. We're here at Belmont, and it is my absolute pleasure to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Now I've got a quick question for you to turn to the person next to you and ask. Um, How do you know if something has actually happened? You've got about 30 seconds, turn to the person next to you. How can we know if something has actually happened? Off you go. Okay, thank you everyone. Thank you so much. I wonder what you said. It's a big question, isn't it, in our lives today? Uh, How do we know when something's happened? At the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, TikTok and other video sharing platforms were told that they needed to put little, like, identification kind of notices at the end of videos because people were sharing false things that were happening in the war. Uh, In an age of kind of fake news and and all that sort of stuff, the BBC have people like uh, disinformation correspondents and things like BBC Reality Check that that take the time to go through what people are saying, what people are doing, um, and uh, check that if it's real. Um, We live in a world where Photoshop and video editing software is available to most people really easily. Things like deepfakes, which if you don't know are absolutely terrifying, um, mean that you can make a video to make it look like someone is saying something or doing something they haven't done. We've all got phones in our pockets, don't we? And you'd think it would be really easy with a phone, but, but actually it's not. We can never be too sure if what we're seeing, if what we're reading is real. And that's the case with our passage today a little bit. Um, If you're reading it in a physical Bible or even a virtual one, you might notice that it's in italics or or brackets. The formatting has changed. And the reason for that is we don't know if this is like actually in the Bible or not. We don't know. We can't be sure. We don't have the proof in the way we do with other things. And so we're faced with a question this morning of what do we do with it? How do we respond to it? How do we react to it? And that's what we're going to spend some time thinking about. So I'm going to pray for us, uh, because I believe you can't get enough prayer. And then we're going to get into what's in our Bibles, why is it there, and how do we deal with this passage. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power it has to, to challenge and shape and renew us. We thank you for the ways that it speaks to us and into the situations we face. As we come together now to explore these verses, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'll be with us. Speak to me, speak to us as we explore together. Open our hearts and our minds to hear and respond to your gentle nudges and encouragement. I pray that through what we hear now, you will shape us more into the people you intended us to be. Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, Now, before we address the genuineness of our passage this morning, um, I want to kind of quickly go into, very quickly, uh, what is in our Bibles and why it's there. Because I think it's going to be quite helpful for us as we kind of address this passage. Now, the Bible that uh, some of you are holding in your hands today is a translated version of a selection of manuscripts, so bits of paper, uh, parchment letters, scrolls that were brought together initially in the 5th century uh, and then tweaked over time. 
What made the cut uh, was kind of based on the reliability of the text. So uh, how many copies of it were there? Did they kind of say the same thing? Where did they come from? Uh, the message of the text as well. Did, it, did the, what it was saying kind of line up with the same truth, the same uh, story, the same theology, the same understanding of God as other verified texts that we had? And the author of the text was a big thing as well. Was the, did they have the authority, the legitimacy to say what they were saying? Church leaders made those decisions in like meetings and councils. It's really boring, but you can look it up if you like. Um, and that's why different Christian traditions today have different books that made the cut. The Catholic and the Orthodox Church, for example, both include books in their Bibles that we just don't have in ours because of these questions around legitimacy, around reliability that came about during the establishment of the Protestant Church in the 17th century. Now, I actually don't have a huge amount of time to get into this this morning. Uh, So, if you want to know more, can I recommend you find these books somewhere, online or or wherever, and have a read, because it is really interesting, if you like that sort of thing. Um, And um, these books are really, really helpful um, kind of guides that maybe might help you think a little bit more about this. In all of that, though, what I want to make really clear this morning is that God is involved in that process. Okay, this is still God's word. Paul understood the Old Testament, which went through a kind of similar selection process in the time of Ezra, to still be God-breathed, God-inspired. That's what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16. And Paul writes that despite human involvement. And so there's no reason why I think that we can't say the same of the rest of Scripture. Okay, God works in and through all that we do. That includes the decisions that we make and the choices that we take. Just because these stories were written by humans and they were selected by humans doesn't mean God wasn't part of that process. It doesn't mean that God isn't speaking to us in that process. It doesn't mean that God does not and cannot speak through his word. Okay? We don't need to doubt that. We just need to hold it in our minds. So we're going to move on to our passage in particular this morning. We're looking at John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Now, just before Meg read to us uh, the text for us, we heard her read this, didn't we? She said, The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Maybe a slight problem if you're asked to preach on this. I don't know. Um, a few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, after John 7.36, John 21.25, Luke 21.38, or Luke 24.53. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that in the earliest copies of John's gospel that we have, this story doesn't feature, okay? Unlike the rest of John's accounts, this encounter with this woman, it just isn't there. In the few manuscripts that it does feature in, uh, which come uh, later and are therefore considered less reliable, less authoritative than the other kind of copies that we would date back to maybe within 100 years of Jesus uh, being on the earth. Uh, The story does crop up, but it crops up in all these different places. Halfway through John 7, at the end of the book of John, in the middle of Luke, it's everywhere. In the case of our passage, then, it's it's reliability that is in doubt here this morning. Because it turns up in enough manuscripts, it has been included by modern translators into our Bibles. But there's a caveat, isn't there? There's that notice that it can't be authenticated in the same way as the rest of John can. 
There are other issues with this passage too. I don't know whether you noticed, but it comes in a really weird time in John's Gospel. Those who have studied this passage write that it's intrusive and interruptive, that it's disconnected from both that which goes before, which we've just spent the last two weeks looking at, and that which comes after, which we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at. To me, it feels like it's sort of been rammed into the storyline. And if you try and place it earlier in John 7 or later in John 21, it feels just as forced. I also don't think it sounds very much like John. Oh, there we go. Um, The vibe here is different. It's a different, it doesn't sound like him. It's not his voice. And although others feel like it might fit more with Luke, actually, we don't really know that it belongs anywhere at all. We then have a decision that we have to make. What do we want to do with it? Do we ignore it completely? If so, this might be the shortest sermon that has ever been preached at Belmont. We can all go home and it'll be great. Or, sorry everyone, um, can we still engage with it? Can we still find ways to think about it, to learn from it, even though its origins are a little bit sketchy? I think this is a story that was going around about Jesus uh, during his ministry that people thought deserved to be in the official record uh, of Jesus' life. And so what they did is they kind of just tagged it in wherever it would fit. John 21, 25 tells us that Jesus did loads of things that just didn't make the cut, didn't get written down in his gospel. And so I think it gives us scope to see this as something that actually could have happened, but just wasn't chosen by John or the other gospel writers. The story itself doesn't contradict anything else Jesus does in his ministry, nor does it include a fundamental statement or fact about Jesus's identity that we as Christians today rely on. Nothing hinges on this story. As such... I think as long as we seek to understand it in the knowledge that it might not be as reliable as other things we read about Jesus in John, and we look to the wider picture of the Bible, particularly Jesus' life and ministry to help us do that, then there's no reason why we shouldn't consider and examine this story, nor is there any reason why we can't be challenged by it or confronted by it or encouraged by it or spoken to through it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So, let's get into the actual passage, shall we? Now, those of you who are familiar with John are probably familiar with this passage. I imagine it's a story you've heard before. Jesus is back in the temple courts preaching and teaching, something that he spent a lot of his time doing while he was on earth. And as he sat down exploring whatever scripture or tradition it might have been that day, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees come in and present him with this real-life ethical dilemma, okay? They bring with them a woman caught in adultery, caught sleeping with someone who wasn't her husband. And they present her before Jesus and in front of the the crowd stood listening to him. In John verses 4 and 5, uh, John 8 verses 4 and 5, we see this. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Now, Gary Bird asked the question that if she was caught in the act of adultery, then he, the man with who the adultery was taking place, uh, would have been caught too. The accusers, he writes, have permitted the man to get away clean. And yet the woman is left, standing in front of all of these men, accused. Now, there are a few things that we need to understand to kind of help us get to grips with this a little bit better. 
Firstly, when they're referring to the law, they're referring to the first five books of our Old Testament. So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? Secondly, if you go to Deuteronomy 22 or Leviticus 20, you do find laws that talk about this very thing, about people who get caught in adultery being strangled or stoned because of that. In addition to this, you have the Mishnah, the the spoken law of the day, that also specified that fiancés, wives that were unfaithful, would be put to death. The law, though, also required strong evidence of a crime taking place in order to convict. This means that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have needed at least two witnesses uh, to see this crime take place in order to bring the charge. Now, for two witnesses... To see this sort of crime, the nature of this sort of crime, take place at the same time so that their testimony lines up is a bit unusual, you might think. And actually, a lot of commentators think it was a bit of a trap. Now, the law also states that if a person was about to see someone commit a sin, compassion required them to step in, to tell them, well, don't do that, that's not what you want to do, to challenge them on their behaviour. So these witnesses that the Pharisees have brought before Jesus, apparently to kind of testify that this has happened, silently stood by and allowed it to take place. They were neglecting their moral obligation to give guidance to the woman and the man in that situation too. This then, I would like to suggest, is not about an accurate playing out of the law. Because if it were, the woman would be uh, stood next to the man she committed the crime with. This is about something else, isn't it? This is about finding a way to catch Jesus out. And we're told as much in verse 6. In a situation similar to that of the woman at the well, we see her sin and not his sin. And the reason for that is because the teachers of the law were far more concerned in this case of simply providing the occasion for an encounter that they were so desperate to have that everything else went out the window. Now, the reason that this is such a trap is because it was forbidden, in the most part, for Jews to carry out capital punishment, carry out death sentences for those that broke their laws. The responsibility was reserved for the Romans who occupied Israel at the time. Those of you who are familiar with the Easter story will know that it's Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, that okays the death of Jesus, because the Jewish leaders didn't have the authority to do so. The Pharisees know, okay, that Jesus is known to show compassion to sinners. And they're banking on him doing this, causing him to make a statement that is different to the law, undermining him as a teacher, and Jesus goes away, problem solved. If he doesn't, though, if Jesus does what the law says and he stones the woman, then Jesus gets arrested and he goes away never to be seen again. Problem solved. And so you've got these Pharisees who are sat here, like rubbing their hands, smiles on their faces because they've done it, all right? They've got Jesus. He can't get out of this. He's done. And what does Jesus do? Well, the second half of verse 6 tells us that Jesus bends down and he starts to write uh, in the sand. And you can imagine the smiles that the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had kind of dropping as they realise that Jesus is not falling into their trap in the way that they wanted. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote uh, in the sand. Uh, In his commentary, Gary Burge writes, lots of people believe that he just kind of wrote something in Hebrew that kind of might shape his response. 
Lots of people think that Jesus wrote this in the sand, Jeremiah 17, 13. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now that works nicely, doesn't it, with our passage this morning. Also works quite nicely with what Paul was talking about um, last week and uh, what Johnny's going to speak about next week. Others, though, think that Jesus might be writing in the sand um, the beginning of Exodus 23. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing something wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert the course of justice by siding with the crowd. Again, that fits quite nicely with what we've already thought about this morning. The truth is, though, we don't know. We just don't know. And actually, we don't need to know in lots of different ways. What we do learn in this passage is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law aren't happy with the lack of response from Jesus. And so they continue to question him. And when he finally gives them the response thereafter, it's not quite the response that they actually wanted. Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, according to the majority of commentators, Jesus isn't saying that you have to be sinless or morally perfect in order to enact justice. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Because none of us are morally perfect, and therefore justice would never be enacted. Also, it would give us a a get-out-of-free-jail card, right? For any time someone tried to challenge us on behaviour that maybe wasn't the best, we could say, well, you can't do that, because you're not perfect yourself. It's not how it works. Instead, commentators see this as a a reference to the law itself, which stated that the witness of a crime must be the first to stone uh, the victim. It could also be seen as a challenge to the Pharisees as well, who by bringing only the woman and not the man, have objected and condemned this woman to an unfair and unjust uh, judgment. What happens next in our passage, though, is what I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about this morning. Because in these last three verses, I think there are three messages for us today. Now, the first of those messages is found in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one by one, uh, the older first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, I'm going to confess something quite big to you now. I'm a lover of reality TV. Um, I do, I love it. And one of the reasons why I love reality TV so much is because it can often make me feel quite smug. Uh, It makes me feel quite righteous about the choices I make in my life uh, and the decisions that I decide to take. And there is, I think, something in each one of us in this room today that enjoys feeling a little bit smug. We like that feeling, don't we? We enjoy the feeling of watching someone make a mistake that we wouldn't make. Someone make a mistake that we wouldn't dream of doing and getting caught out. As human beings, we are created in the image of a just God. And therefore, we love justice. And we love justice being carried out. These aren't bad things. But this passage warns us that if we mix this kind of love of justice with that enjoyment of smugness, that's when it becomes a problem. Because we end up being people who delight in the condemnation, the severe judgment and punishment of others. And that's not great. Over the last couple of weeks, Paul Cook has been talking to us about the dangers of judgment and judging others without humility and grace. And that's what we're seeing happen in our passage before Jesus steps in. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are using the law, something that was designed to liberate people, to trap someone, 
They're using the law, something that was designed to protect vulnerable people, particularly women, to degrade and humiliate someone. Galatians 5 verse 1 tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, we need to be careful to not use that freedom, the very thing that has set us free from our condemnation, to go about and condemn others. We are called in this life to challenge the behaviour of people. We are called to pursue justice at all costs. What we are not called to do, if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, is to condemn others. That's just not what we're called to do. And the only reason that you have the freedom you have, if you are a follower of Jesus in this room today, is because Jesus won it for you. If it was down to you, you would be stood just like that woman, humiliated and embarrassed and waiting for death. Jesus' simple challenge to those so eager to condemn leads to this moment, Caroline Lewis writes, of condemnation of self. This moment of self-judgment, self-realisation, as one by one, those that surround the woman walk away. One by one, they realise they cannot, for reasons that we've already thought about this morning, throw that stone. And in the face of their own failings, they leave. And maybe that's your challenge this morning. That you are someone sat in this room today who maybe just needs to drop their stone. Walk away. Because it's not your place And it's not your job to condemn that person. On a side note, notice that it's the the older ones that go away first. Um, They set the example. Now, in some ways, this, I think, might be a little warning against the kind of single-mindedness that comes with youth. I definitely experienced that in my late teens and early 20s. Um, But I think it's also a reminder that whoever we are in this room today, people look up to us. If you're sat here having spent 60 plus years following the Lord, people look up to you. But if you're sat here expecting to go to PRP after the end of this service, people also look up to you. What you do matters. You lead by example. We all lead each other by example. We set the culture, we set the tone. And that's something I think as a church we might want to reflect on this morning. The second message then comes um, in verse 10 and the first part of verse 11. And it's Jesus and the woman left uh, there. uh, And we read that he straightens up because he's been bent down writing in the sand. And he asks the woman directly, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, no one, sir. And then so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. All those that accused her, humiliated her, embarrassed and degraded her have gone. They've left, maybe feeling something of what she's felt like in this whole encounter. And she's left with just Jesus, who doesn't throw a rock at her, even though we know he could, but instead talks to her. Now, Jesus straightens up twice in this passage. The first time is when he's talking to the teachers and the Pharisees. The second time is here. Jesus is treating this woman with the same level of respect as he did the religious leaders and teachers He addresses her with the same level of respect, making him the first person in this whole passage to do so. When he speaks directly to her, he does so in a way that doesn't undermine her dignity or value, but upholds it, protects it. See, unlike the religious leaders, unlike the crowd that surrounded her, Jesus is able to see beyond her mistakes, beyond her sin. Jesus is able to see the woman 
And that woman is a woman loved and cherished by God. When Jesus does speak to her, he doesn't address or even ask about the crime that she's accused of committing. Instead, he asks her whether or not there is anybody left who will condemn her of the crime. In Romans 7, um, Paul talks about us being released from the law. um, And we're released from the law because we're with Jesus. He then goes on to say at the beginning of Romans 8, something that I'm sure lots of people in this room will be familiar with. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In this moment, in this story, in these verses, we see that very truth played out, I think. This woman is free from condemnation, not because of a mistrial, not because she didn't do the thing that she's accused of doing. She is free from condemnation because she is with Jesus. And when you are with Jesus, there is no condemnation. If you're someone here today who is feeling accused or humiliated, whether you're feeling embarrassed or degraded, you might be someone today who's feeling too broken or too bruised, too dirty or too messy. Can I tell you right now that I'm really sorry if that is you? If that is you today, I'm so sorry. But I want you to know that none of that is true. None of that is true. You are not any of those things too much for Jesus. Whatever it is you've done, whatever it is you think is too much or too big, it isn't, not for Jesus. And you too can be free from condemnation through him because he took that from you um, when he died on the cross. Our third and final message then this morning is found in the second part of verse 11 where after declaring this woman as free from condemnation, Jesus tells her to go now and leave your life of sin. It's important here how we recognise that Jesus doesn't imply that this woman is innocent. He doesn't say you haven't committed the crimes that you've been accused for. He doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't condone her behaviour either. Jesus is gracious and forgiving to all of those who get caught up in the grips of sin, of not putting God first. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't take it seriously. Jesus is dead serious about sin, died on a cross for it. That's how serious he is. Jesus invites us to to come as we are, but he doesn't want us to stay that way. And I think that's what this passage is telling us this morning. In his sovereignty, he's able to forgive the mistakes we make and pardon us just like he did with the woman. But that's not so we can continue to make those mistakes over and over and over again. We are free from condemnation, Paul writes, but we are not free to sin as much as we like. And I think sometimes we can get a little bit comfortable, a little bit too comfortable in our lack of condemnation. And I think that's something that happens to all of us. About 18 months ago, um, I was really challenged by several people uh, who were really important to me in my life around my attitude to alcohol. Now, I don't think I had a problem per se, but I would go out every now and again, and when I would, I would drink too much, a lot too much usually. And I wouldn't necessarily think that much of it. Now, the Bible's clear, isn't it, on where it stands on that kind of behaviour, and I knew it wasn't ideal behaviour. I knew it wasn't something that I like, you know, should be doing. But deep down, I didn't think it was that big a deal. And I think deep down, I also thought, nah, Jesus will forgive me anyway. I've got a bit too comfy in my lack of condemnation. 
Jesus says to this woman, in response to me saving your life, in response to me removing the condemnation that was before you, in response to me giving you a second chance, you need to leave your life of sin. And I think that's what Jesus says to each and every one of us when we decide that we want to follow him. We're not perfect, and Jesus doesn't expect us to be either. But I guarantee that there will be things all of us do that we know isn't God's best for us, that isn't God's ideal for us. And I wonder how hard we try to leave those things behind, or whether we're just a little bit too comfortable in that lack of condemnation that has been gifted to us by Jesus and his death on the cross. In a minute, Ben's going to come and lead us in a time of communion. But before he does that, um, I want to uh, give us a minute just to think about where we're at in relation to those uh, three messages. Are we someone who fears condemnation? Are there things that we feel are too bad, too wrong, uh, too big for Jesus to forgive? Are we someone who delights in the condemnation of others? Do we enjoy judging other people? Are we someone who's a little bit too comfortable in their lack of condemnation? Are we reluctant to leave certain sins behind? What I want to do now is give you a moment or so just to reflect by yourself on those questions. Then I'm going to pray for us, and then Ben's going to come and lead us in communion. Let me give you a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it can speak to us uh, and speak into our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are um, someone who removes condemnation from us, that because of what you have done on the cross, we can be free from that. And Lord, if there are people in this room today that do not know that truth, I pray that you really make that clear to them this morning. Lord, help us when we uh, maybe delight in the condemnation of others too much. Help us to to challenge with humility, with grace, to recognise the the privileged position that we are in um, because of you. And Lord, if there are things that you would like us to leave behind this morning, things you would like us to walk away from, Lord, I pray that you'll give us the the courage and the boldness to listen to that and to do that. Thank you for this time together. And we thank you that we've been able to spend time in your word. Amen. Thank you.